left off. And um, today is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of a new year, but it's the beginning of the end of Acts. And uh, in today's passage, Paul, who had completed his third missionary journey, is on his way to Jerusalem, had promised to meet with the Ephesians before he went back, but was detained, and now, while in Miletus, summons the Ephesian elders to join him and gives them a farewell speech. This farewell speech, in some ways, is a defense of his ministry, in other ways, a charge and an exhortation to the fellow pastors and elders of the church that he labored in for three years, and it's very emotional. For him, it's time to say goodbye. And uh, in starting this new year, I see the sermon is very fitting because we're saying goodbye to the year, another year, 2021, and, and looking forward to something new. For Paul, it's saying goodbye to his third missionary journey, his time in Ephesus, but looking forward to something new. And in the next few chapters in Acts, we're going to be looking at Paul's <clears throat> uh, standing before different judges and different uh, um, leaders and ultimately coming before Caesar giving a testimony, uh, just as the Lord promised him in his conversion, that he would stand before kings and magistrates to testify of this gospel. And so with that said, let's direct our attention to verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, 
how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. And being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege that we have to stand before your holy word. Thank you, Lord God, that you have written for us, O Lord, these divine instructions for our growth and holiness. Thank you for your word, O Lord, for it is holy and pure, tried seven times by the fire. And through it, O Lord, our souls are admonished, instructed, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. We ask now that you would please impart to us, O Lord, illumination, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Give us grace, O Lord, that we may not only hear the word today, but we may be doers of the word. Help us to apply the text that we learn, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to your glory and power. And Lord, I ask for myself, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be upon me, overshadow me, anoint my mind and my heart and my lips, that everything I say and that everything that comes from my mouth would glorify you and be from you. It's to you we pray, all glory and honor and praise. Amen. Amen. All righty. So, what a way to start a new year. We, uh, we started off with all this hoopla about another wave in the pandemic. But yet, as we start this year, we say goodbye, as I just said a few moments ago. And Paul is saying goodbye to his friends, to the members of the church, to colleagues, to elders and pastors of the church of Ephesus. And as we see in this passage, it was, it was a very emotional farewell. Saying goodbye is never easy. Over the years, there have been several moments and times where we've had members, uh, very, very close members, people that we love, um, who just, you know, God calls them elsewhere. They move, and uh, God calls them to live in a different area or serve in a different church. Uh, and every time that happens, it's a very emotional period. I remember the last time when the Polancos left, it was a very emotional departure, and it was hard to say goodbye. I would rather much have them stayed here although they seem to be much happier in Texas. Regardless of the fact, um, there are times when we must say goodbye. Paul had spent three years here in Ephesus. That was the longest he spent in any of the cities where he was called to do missionary work and preach the gospel. That was a long time for Paul, who spent at most a few months, 18 months in Corinth, and three years in Ephesus. And when you spend three years with somebody, you build relationships with people, you get to know people, you, you marry people, you baptize people, you, you, you mourn with families as they lose loved ones, you, you, you actually get to see children who are born and you have people for dinner and you eat with them and you, you worship with them and you have fellowship with them and, and you grow a bond. And, and, and these men were the elders, these were the men who Paul had trained and he had taught and poured his life into to raise them up to be the leaders of the church of Ephesus. And so even more so, there is an investment there. 
No wonder why three times in this passage, Paul talks about his tears, and particularly in the end of the passage where where we see that all of them are weeping and they're hugging and kissing. In verse 38, it says, there was much weeping on the part of all and they embraced Paul and kissed him. And kissing here is not in any way uh, uh, illustrious, but it was common in the ancient world as a demonstration of affection and respect to kiss someone on their cheek. And this showed how much they loved Paul. They were sorrowful. They knew, as Paul said, you're never going to see my face again. And with that said, Paul has some final words for them, some final words. And the words he gives them um, are pretty much broken up into two parts, a defense of his own ministry in Ephesus, particularly as so many would seem to slander him and to accuse him uh, of being a false teacher or uh, for being someone simply looking out for themselves. And more importantly, the instructions he imparts to the Ephesian elders on how they're to conduct their ministry. Those instructions are very uh, uh, important and, and still looked at today uh, as a framework for what pastoral ministry should look like. Uh, pastors and elders look to these, this passage as, as, a, as, as a guideline of what should, what should ministry look like? What should elders look like? How do we do ministry? Uh, this is a powerful passage, and and, and has great pastoral uh, implications. However, uh, there is also here, laid in this, standards that are not just for elders and pastors, but for all Christians, right? Because elders and pastors are not some distinct category of Christian that are superior or have a, have a different standard than other Christians. We're, we're regular Christians. We're believers like everyone else, there's not two categories, clergy and laity, like in Roman Catholicism, but there are all believers. We're a, a priesthood of believers. Elders are merely those who've been set apart from the congregation with the responsibility to preach and to teach and to care for and disciple God's people. And so therefore, the standards here are not, well, you, pastor, better live up to the standards, but it's good for thee, but not for me. No, this is... For all of us, these standards can be applicable to all of us to live up to a holy, godly standard. And before I even proceed into getting into this, I want to make point out something very important as well. It's, it's really important to see how Paul addresses his audience. He uses three different terms interchangeably in this passage in referencing his audience. Uh, first, in verse 17, we see that his audience is referred to as elders, um, in verse 17, now these were the elders of the church of Ephesus who were summoned by Paul. Now we know in Acts 14, 23, uh, the pattern of Paul's missionary work was to plant a church. And after planting a church, he and Barnabas would appoint elders in every city where they had developed the work. And the elders were to continue the ministry work that he and Barnabas started. And this pattern would continue, especially after, although not mentioned again, I'm sure this was the pattern of his ministry with Silas as well. Nevertheless, the question is, who are these elders? The word in Greek, presbyteros, uh, um, literally means an older person, but it is not used literally. The word elder um, is not merely referring to someone who is aged, but someone who is mature in the faith, as even John Calvin said. Those who are called elders are not those gray-headed, but were the rulers of the church. 
It references a spiritual maturity, those who had developed and grown and demonstrated the character and the ability to lead God's people. The second word that is used is the word shepherd or uh, um, or shepherding. And, and in both the, in verse 28, we see that the noun form of which is rendered flock and the verbal form to shepherd or to take care of is where we get the term pastor from. That's uh, the Greek word poimen. And so that word only, only used a few times in the New Testament, although we use the term pastor quite frequently, is a term that's used in this passage interchangeably to address what exactly the elders do. The elders shepherd, they care, they feed the flock of God. That is their responsibility. And they are responsible to the chief shepherd, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, the term overseers is used also in verse 28. And this word, episkopoi, is where we, uh, in Greek, is where we get the word episcopal. And obviously, there's a hierarchy in the Episcopalian church of bishops, and it's where we get the English word bishop from, and, and this describes what elders do, and that is that they, they manage the household of God. They manage the household of God. And so we're not dealing with three different offices here, the office of an elder, the office of a bishop, and the office of a pastor. All three are one office, and all of these terms could be used interchangeably to describe the same person. A plurality of elders that oversees a church that manages the affairs of the church and that cares for the people of God. And this is exactly who Paul is addressing here. And it's a reminder here, it's a reminder here that the elders are those who pick up the, the, the baton from the apostles. Once the apostles die, the apostolic age is over. They are no longer uh, apostles in the New Testament church. The the apostles were a, a small group of 12 men, and that office terminated when John died on in his last days in Ephesus, actually. John actually was a bishop in Ephesus or overseer in, in, in uh, Ephesus himself. John MacArthur says it this way, the term elder emphasizes who the man is, the bishop speaks of what he does, and the word pastor deals with how he ministers. And so we have a portrait here of pastoral ministry. So let's look first to Paul. Paul sets the pattern. He sets the standard. If we're going to look at this, we need to look first at what Paul describes in himself. In verse 18 and 19, uh, we read this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from teaching you or declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If there's one word that describes in this whole passage the character and the life of Paul, because he says, you know how I lived among you. In other words, he was there three years. You've seen how I lived. And if there's one word that Paul can use to characterize his life is serving the Lord, or the word serving. Paul is a servant. And all of his life is about service. 
Now, the, the concept of serving God goes back to the Old Testament, right? You either serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your strength, and all your mind, or you serve idols. In our recent study in the book of Judges, we've seen that God was provoked to anger against Israel. Why? Because they went and served the Baals. What did Jesus say? He says, you cannot serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve mammon. Not Tom Mammon, but mammon, the god of money. Right? And so this idea of serving uh, mammon or serving money typifies the greatest idol in man's heart. That means you either... You either serve God with your heart or you serve the gods, the lowercase g gods of this world that try to offer you satisfaction and happiness and peace, but they fail. They come up short every time. Serve God. Serve him with all your heart. And Paul serves God. He doesn't serve himself. He serves God. If there's one verse that encapsulates uh, everything what Paul is about, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians Chapter, chapter 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. You see, Paul saw his whole life as, as being a servant to God. In fact, the word used there is doulos. It, 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 is, it implies that Paul is a slave. In the Roman world, you were either a slave or a free man. And Paul saw himself as a man without rights. He was the property of someone else and he belonged to God. And therefore, his life was bound up to do one thing, and that was to serve God. What about us? Do we think that way? Do we see our relationship to God as his servants? Do we see ourselves as slaves? Oh, that's a, that's a hard word to, to, to even say, uh, especially the historical significance of it. But look at who we are. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. We did not pay for our redemption. Christ paid for it. And we belong to God. And so we, whatever we do, we do for God and we serve him. When we serve ourselves, we betray the Lord and serve idols. And so Paul understood that he was first a servant to God and then a servant as a result to the church. Paul's ministry of service was modeled after the Lord himself. What did Jesus say? He said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is what ministry is about. In fact, the word ministry that we use so often comes from the word diakonos in Greek, and it literally means to serve, to serve tables. Pride boosts the ego, and as a result, when pride fills our ego, we find it very difficult to serve because serving means to humble ourselves, and that's exactly what Paul says. He says, I served with all humility. And so we see different ways he characterizes his service. In verse 19, he says, I've served with all humility. And that, that goes right back to what we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5.4. It wasn't about Paul. It was never about Paul. It was about Jesus Christ. Everything Paul did, everything he endured, all of the journeys, all of the preaching, all of the teaching, he, it, it was not about building an empire for himself. 
It wasn't about putting a book deal together. It wasn't about preaching at the next big conference. It wasn't about becoming the next celebrity pastor. No, it was all about Jesus Christ. It was far removed from what we see today in big evangelicalism. Paul's humility is encapsulated in the one statement he says in verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, only that I may finish the course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. You know what humility is? Humility is not thinking low of yourself. You know, you ever see some people, oh, I'm such a horrible person, I'm such a wretched worm, and oh, woe is me. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking low of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself. Humility is when you think of God and others before yourself. That's humility. And that was evident in the way Paul lived his life. And when he, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Do you think Paul would have even done the three missionary journeys if he was a proud man? This was a man emptied of self. If he was full of self, there is no way he would have endured the hardship, the difficulty, the stress, the aggravation of doing what he did. He did it because he loved people and he loved God and he wanted to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. John Piper says this, humility means feeling indebted to all people because of how graciously God has treated us. It's the opposite of feeling that everybody owes you something. Owes you an ear, or owes you a stroke, or owes you your time. No, rather, the more you are driven by what others owe you, rather than by what you owe them in sacrifice and service, the less humble you are. Unfortunately, today, we live in a society with people who think everybody owes them everything. We've raised generations of children that are entitled and privileged and think everybody should stop and heal at their beck and call. No. Instead, we are to realize the grace of God is to change our hearts in such a way that we feel that we owe a debt of service to everyone around us. With all tears, Paul says, with all tears, this expressed Paul's personal concern for the church of the members in it. Later in the passage, he says, I admonished you day and night with tears. This is a man who was passionate. This was a man who was moved within. I'm not someone who cries that easily. It, it's very hard to squeeze a tear out of these eyes. And I don't say that with, with boasting. Um, but, I, but as I was thinking through this, I was wondering, maybe this is an area where I need to see my own heart grow. Uh, this was a man so deeply and emotionally attached to the people uh, that his, he, he was easily moved to tears for his love and compassion for them, to see them growing in, in Christ and, and, and sad and grieved at their falling away. I must confess, over the years, I have cried a few times, particularly at the pain and the sting of seeing apostasy in the church, uh, having members in the church who served for years side by side, people who I loved and called my friends and then just one day threw in the towel and forsook Christ and, and be like Demas, they loved this world, turning away. 
Those were the times that really broke me, really hurt me. But Paul was a man who was, who was in tears for the church. He, he, his heart was poured out for them. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, you could see that when he gives a list of all the sufferings he endured in ministry, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I always find that interesting when you read that laundry list of all that he suffered in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm anxious and burdened for the church 24-7. He calls himself like a mother to the church. He calls himself like a father to the church. He was like a parent. He's seen the church as his children. And, and, and when you have children and they walk astray from the Lord, it brings you to tears. And when they grow and they, and they become adults and they become mature and they get married, it moves you to tears. And there's a sense of both tears of joy and there's tears of pain. And that's the kind of uh, tears that pastoral ministry will bring. It brings a sense of, 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 of bonding and of love and a connection with the people. In Philippians 3.18, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It wasn't only the people within the church that drove Paul to tears, but it was also the pain of seeing how many uh, have turned away from Christ. I know, is, is it um, Paul Washer, right? This is a man, if you ever listen to him preach, he cries when he preaches. I think his ministry is heart cry ministries, right? So, um, but you see a man there who was really driven. And that's the kind of passion that Paul had, I believe. And so Paul was passionate about the people. This, his service was passionate. His ministry was passionate. Also, it says he suffered through trials. His service came through suffering. It, it wasn't easy to serve God for Paul. I, I get the sense that when it's easy to serve God, we'll serve him. When it's convenient to serve God, we'll serve him. When it doesn't require much sacrifice on my part, I'll serve him. But if it's going to be difficult, if it's going to be sacrificial, it's going to be inconvenient, oh my, I can't do it. It's one thing to serve God when you're a celebrity pastor and everybody loves you and you're popular. It's another thing to serve God when everybody wants to kill you. And that was Paul's ministry. He says it right here. He says, I, he talks about the Jews and their, and their coming after him. He says, how I did not shrink. Oh, no, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And we looked at all of them when we were in, uh, in the book of Acts. We looked at how they hunted him down from one city to the next. Not content to drive them out of one city, they would go to the next city, go to the synagogue, stir up the crowd, form a mob, and literally hunt Paul down, and they could have killed him if they wanted to. But God kept delivering Paul over and over. How many of us would continue to serve if you knew you had a mob chasing you from city to city wanting to kill you? You'd probably say, that's it, I'm done. You know, the heat gets turned up a little, but the heat, when the heat turns up, it shows who really belongs to the Lord and who doesn't. And if you can't stand the heat, you can get out of the kitchen, as the old saying goes, right? Serving God at times means you will have to serve in difficulty and in trials and in suffering. 
In all this, Paul had patience, perseverance, and fortitude, knowing that he was bound to preach the gospel in season and out of season. One thing I could tell you this, and this is true, that when you serve God and you truly live for him, you will suffer persecution. Let me, let me, let me, let me just restate that. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not may be, will be persecuted. And so I, as you look forward to this new year, and you say, I'm going to resolve to serve God more, I'm going to resolve to live a more godly life in Christ Jesus, just remember this, you will be persecuted. You will suffer for his sake. And if you don't have persecution in your life, then that may be the result of you not pursuing to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, Paul goes on to describe his service as saying, I testify, uh, no, how he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable. He taught in public and from house to house. This was the focus of Paul's ministry. The focus of Paul's ministry was preaching and teaching. The focus of Paul's ministry was the gospel. Verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, really demonstrate the two sides of the coin of conversion. You can't have one without the other. You can't say that I have faith in Christ without repentance. Repentance is a turning away from, a forsaking of sin. You can't say I, I have faith in Christ, but, but are wallowing in the mire of sin and loving your sin. And at the same time, you can't say I have repentance, but don't have faith. That's works-based religion. That's all about human effort. Repentance of sin and, and faith in Christ go together hand in hand, and that is the gospel message. It's turning away from sin. It's, it's forsaking and, and saying, I hate my sin, and it's a change of mind, and it's a repudiation of sin in life, and it's a desire to resolve to live a different life, and then looking to Christ as the only one who could do that for me. Looking to Christ as the satisfaction of my sins. Looking to Christ as the one who forgave all my sins, who paid the debt, who re renews me and gives me sanctification, as we read earlier. That's salvation. And Paul devoted his life to preaching and teaching all that was profitable. Not just in public. We read, remember in Ephesus when he was there, he, had, he rented the hall of Tyrannus. And he was there daily preaching and teaching. This was a man who three years was engaged in preaching. I can't imagine doing that myself, preaching and teaching every day. And then going house to house preaching every day. Paul was all about the gospel. And it makes us wonder, is this what our life is like? <clears throat> now, as a pastor, there clearly is incumbent on me, and Pastor Paul is sitting here probably thinking the same thing, incumbent on us, a greater devotion, a greater sense of saying as the new year comes by, how can we devote ourselves more to the development, to the discipleship of the church of Jesus Christ, of the giving of ourselves more to the people of Christ? But as ourselves as well, what are areas that you could pour into those around you?
your families, your unsaved loved ones, your, your co-workers, your, your children, your, your parents. How can you pour into and devote yourself more, and even among the church? Right? Worst attitude in a church is when they say, well, that's the pastor's job. Let them do it. I'm not getting involved. I have my own job. No, we're all to disciple one another, to pour into each other's lives. And Paul goes on talking about his future in verse 22. And he says this, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul didn't know his future, but he did know two things. He knew that he was in the hands of God. He says, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit. Going back to Acts chapter 16, 6, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia in his initial course. He was led to Macedonia first. Instead, in 1810, when he wanted to leave Corinth, he was constrained by the Spirit again when the Lord spoke to him through a dream, saying, stay here and no harm will come upon you. And for 18 months, he ministered in Corinth. You see, there's one thing that Paul understood, and he understood that his life was under the sovereign control of God. He understood that his life was not his own. As a slave, as a doulos, as a servant of God, he understood that his destiny was in God's hands, not his. And he understood also that the Spirit was testifying that persecution laid ahead. He understood that bad things were ahead, but he wasn't afraid of it. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Well, in one sense, that was true. Because every city he went into, it was as if imprisonment and afflictions were right at the doorstep and he manages to escape. So he knows, in a, in a very human sense, that sooner or later this is going to catch up to me. But in another sense, the Spirit was impressing upon him, and we'll see later as Agabus the prophet even declares that this is indeed your, your destiny, Paul. You know, sometimes we uh, want to know the future. Anybody here ever want to know the future? I sure don't. Um, people go to fortune teller and soothsayers. They want to know, well, what's my horoscope? What's my, what does the future look for, look for me in 2022? I did that once many, many moons ago uh, before I was a believer, and that didn't go too well for me. Because the future might be much more harder for us to bear if we know it. We don't know the trials God has in store for us. But I can tell you one thing, life is not a bed of roses. And in this life, as it says in Acts 14, 22, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. For Paul, it meant imprisonment. And eventually it would mean his execution by the Roman government. For us, it could be different. For us, it could be a battle with cancer. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be the loss of a job. We don't know what losses lay ahead. But in life, we must deal with the fact that trials and tribulations await us. 
And if we're grounded in our faith, we'll face those trials and tribulations, knowing that God is with us. But if we don't, if we're not grounded, when those times come, you will fall apart. You know what made Paul vigilant? You know what gave Paul the confidence to go forward? He says, I don't count my life as value or precious to myself. In other words, his life belonged to Christ. It wasn't, oh, my life, what's going to happen to me? It was, I don't really care what happens to me. If I live or if I die, it doesn't matter to me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the perspective Paul had. Death was not a threat to Paul. Trials were not a threat to Paul. His looking forward to Jerusalem mirrors and echoes the same way Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem and knew he would suffer. What Paul recognizes is that faithfulness is better than life itself. Paul had his priorities in order. And he knew his, his priority was to preach the gospel. What he's saying, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was more afraid to give up his call than to face execution and death. This is what being a Christian is all about. If we can understand that saying there, I do not count my life as dear to myself, then we understand the words of the Lord who says, whoever seeks to find his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. For what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? That summarizes the Christian life. Paul knew he would never see the Ephesian elders again. And as a result, he declared his innocence to them in terms of his ministry. His language is reminiscent of Ezekiel's watchmen. He's innocent of their blood. And what Paul is doing is he's saying that his conscience is clear. He has no doubts. He held nothing back. He spoke to them the full counsel of God, admonishing them day and night for three years. In other words, if anyone fell away, it wasn't his fault. It was their fault. And see, this is a reminder. There's, there's two things here to look at. One is as you look at the landscape of American churches today. How many pastors are fully committed to saying, I have preached the full counsel of God? How many ministers in our churches today can say with a clear conscience, I have told you everything I can about the word of God. I've held nothing back. There are many pastors in our country today who quite frankly are ashamed of what the Bible teaches. They conceal what the Bible teaches. They hide what the Bible teaches. They're afraid they may offend people by what the Bible teaches. And we wonder why our nation is in the state that it's in today. Because the pulpits in this country are filled with men who have neglected their call. And I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I'm saying that as you hear some of the messages, go listen to some of the messages that are preached in some churches around this county, around this state, around this country. You're like, what? 
And this guy's a pastor? You give people cream of wheat for their weekly serving of spiritual food and you expect them to be God's people? But on the flip side of that, there is a remnant and there are still pastors who are faithful and, and unequivocally declaring the full counsel of God to their congregations week in and week out. But that lays the greater responsibility on those who hear. That's what Paul means by, say, by referring to it himself in these terms like the watchman. He said, I'm, I'm innocent of all blood. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, in other words, take heed. Hear the word of God. Imagine on Judgment Day how many will stand before God and give an account. And God will say, you sat in churches and you heard the full counsel of God. You knew my will, but you would not do it. It's a frightening thing to consider. I know Pastor Paul and I, one time recently, were talking, we're saying, we're talking about different cases that we've seen over the years of apostasy within our local grace and truth and among other local churches who are there of reform persuasion. And we said, my goodness, if these things are happening in solid reform biblical churches, what in the world is happening in all the other churches? And what's happened that we can't even see with our eyes? But God sees all. Well, my intention was to complete the sermon by going through the rest of the passages and looking at the, what Paul would now say to the elders in terms of how they're to conduct their ministry. But time has escaped me. And due to the clock ticking away, we're going to save that for next week. But there was enough to hear today, enough to consider, and enough to apply that we should humbly consider what Paul said in those words, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think the reason why Paul could say that is because second to Jesus, I don't think there's ever been a greater Christian who's ever lived. And so when you look at the life of Paul, Paul's not boasting and bragging here like, hey, look at me, look how great I am. It's a testimony of a man who sold out for Christ. And I do not think that you will ever meet another human being that has modeled the life of Christ like Paul. I've heard of other people say, well, you know, as a pastor, you should say, follow me as I follow Christ. I don't think that's the implication here. I think the implication is follow Paul as he follows Christ. Paul is a stellar example of godliness. And we should strive as a human example to live up to the standards he lived in. Not just pastors, but all of us. Living up to the, to the standard of service, of humility, of passion. Of a faithfulness and a devotion to the people of God and to the ministry of the word. And I think if we do that and we resolve that for 2022, we'll have the best year ahead. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this word.
And Lord, as I preach through this and as we look through this, we measure ourselves and see how, how, how far we fail, O oh Lord. We do not measure up, Lord. Lord, we live in troubled times. We live in a period of history where so, many, so much to distract us, so much to take us away, so much discouragement. But we know, Lord, what your word says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. I pray that you would move within us, O Lord, not towards a feeling of self-loathing, not a feeling of, of, of just some morbid despair, but a brokenness, Lord. I pray there would be a brokenness in our hearts over our failures, and not that we would stay in that place of, of, of mourning, but that we'd look to you with the eyes of faith, as our only hope, Christ, the hope of glory, that you, O oh Lord, would raise us up out of whatever mire we're in and we've been in for this past year and create within us a servant's heart. Create within us a desire to serve you more fervently with tears and with passion and with humility, with unmitigated commitment to the development and godliness of others and ourselves. Lord, we need you, for without you we can do nothing. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would rise up to the occasion, rise up to the standard. I pray not only for our church, but I pray for myself and Pastor Paul. Help us as elders, O oh Lord, as pastors, that we would live up to the standard that you put for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.